0: Hey good morning. good morning. Glad to see you guys. Um, I just really want to kind of jump right in today. We're in the series on Judges and we are uh, going through this series looking at the horror and hope of humanity and uh, today we're going to see some more of that. We'll see some horror but we'll see a lot of hope as well and so I'm excited about that. We're going to be in Judges chapter 11. It's where we're going to read from today. We're going to be talking about a man by the name of Jephthah and Jephthah. Um, is actually not that great of a dude. But God uses him uh, to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. And understand, he uses him to deliver Israel, the Jewish people. Uh, The Jews were the people that God chose. They came from Abraham, ultimately, to bring Jesus into the world. Um, And God uses Jephthah to save Israel, to save the Jewish people, out of bondage to the Ammonites. Now, this bondage exists because, as we've been looking at the last two weeks, The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You remember talking about this. This is just their downward spiral through the whole book of Judges. Is that they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They go into bondage. God raises up a judge to save them and deliver them. And the last two weeks, we've really looked at the introductions to Judges and how it appears, one, to God and how it appears to the Israelites and what the consequences of this rejection of God causes. Today's the first time we're going to look at one of the Judges. You've probably heard of Gideon, you may have heard of, of, of Deborah, you've heard of uh, Samson, but today we're looking at this man by the name of Jephthah. Not many of us maybe have heard of him. Again, he's not a great guy. God uses him to deliver Israel simply because of his grace and his mercy and his love for them. So I want to summarize some of this because it, actually the story of Jephthah covers quite a few verses. It goes all the way from halfway through the chap, chapter 10 all the way into chapter 12. I want to summarize kind of chapter 10 for you. Basically what it says is this. Israel once again does evil in the eyes of the Lord. They go into bondage to the Ammonites. They um, begin to cry out, but the Lord says, Listen, every time you've ever cried out to me, I've delivered you. And yet every time I deliver, you go right back. I'm not doing it this time. But they began to repent, confess their sin. They began to um, just plead with him to move. And God sees their misery and it says he couldn't stand it any longer. Now, the Israelites go and they find this man by the name of Jephthah. And we're going to read about him now. Um, the first nine verses talk about his early life and talk about how he really comes to power in Israel. So let's read this as... God is about to use Jephthah to save Israel. It says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife bore him sons. So Jephthah's father had other sons, right, And by his wife. And so when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So Jephthah wasn't a great dude. He was a great fighter. He ends up with all these men who scoundrels, literally it means empty of moral values. They come around him. They kind of form a gang. Basically, Jephthah becomes like a mafia leader back in those days. Really bad dude with some really bad people. He says, It says this, sometimes later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Toad. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Don't you notice this? First, it's be our commander. Come and let's fight. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why would I come help you now? In other words, what's in this for me? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites. You will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. You see this negotiation that's taking place. All of it selfishly motivated. The Israelites only wanting deliverance. Jephthah only wanting to rule over them. The ones who rejected him. Nowhere in this picture do we see Yahweh, God. Then Jephthah, I'm sorry, Jephthah answers, suppose you take me, verse 9, back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? I want to summarize a few verses here. Basically what happens is they say yes. He goes back, he's going to lead them to fight. When he gets back, he addresses the Ammonite king and he tells him, why are you wanting to fight us? He says, you took our land. Basically, Jephthah then gives them a history of Israel and says, we did not take your land. But they were both kind of set on fighting anyway, so they have this uh, moment where it's imminent. They're about to fight. And it says this in verse 28. It says, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah, in arrogance, in stupidity, in not knowing the Lord, not ignorant to the person of God in God's heart, makes this rash vow that he will sacrifice as a burnt offering. The first thing that walks through the door of his home or out the door of his home when he returns from victory. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Minas, as far as Abel-Keramin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. "'Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. "'When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, "'Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, "'and I am devastated. "'I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. "'My father,' she replied, "'you have given your word to the Lord. "'Do to me as you promised, "'now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, "'the Ammonites, but grant me this one request.' She said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months, and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. I want you to notice this. Jephthah, driven by selfish motivation, that was motivated by his rejection makes a vow that does not even line up with the person of God. It does not line up with the heart of God, and it costs him diff, uh, dearly. Let's pray, and we'll get into the message. Father, I thank you this morning for your presence here. You are here. God, I pray you would be honored. God, that you would have your way here right now, Lord. I pray that our hearts would submit to you. That our minds will be calmed. Our spirits will be stilled. We can experience you. God you are here. You are the one who. Set the moon and stars in place. By the work of a finger. You spoke. And it all became. God who are we. That we are mindful of you. Or that you are mindful of us Lord. Who are we. That you would care to know us. And yet. You do. Father, my prayer during this time is that our hunger for you would be stirred. You would act upon your promise that if we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. Fill our mouths with praise to the one who has done so much, to the one who was and is and is to come to the one who is so worthy of all of our praise and all of our hearts. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've all probably seen some pretty crazy stuff that people say God's told them to do, right? Um, It can be a pretty dangerous thing when people start saying, God told me to. Um, And... I was going through, just doing some looking on the internet, just trying to see what are some crazy things that people have done. And I found some pretty good ones, like one uh, was that there was this guy who his wife asked him, this was years and years ago, uh, to build or dig for her a potato cellar. I've never dug a potato cellar, I don't really know what, I guess they are cellars for potatoes, they house potatoes, only thing I can guess. But he starts digging, he says that God tells him to continue to dig. This man digs because God told him to for 23 years. In fact, when he was 67 years old, he died digging this cave. Pretty crazy. I found some others that were pretty good. You can kind of go look at some of these if you want to. But then I had a friend of mine send me a picture. And this is the picture he sent me. And I thought this might be the best one. I don't know if you saw this, but criminal called after cutting off 37 man buns in one day claims he was doing the work of the Lord. I've never even seen 37 man buns in one I don't know what convention he was at. I don't know where he was. 37 man buns. And he just got that smile on his face. He's like, I did it. And we see these things sometimes are humorous, sometimes are not. I mean, you think about the Christian crusades done in the name of the Lord, um, done because God is telling us to. And knowing that this is not God's heart, this is not what God would desire, this is not what God would want. Other people in the name of God, uh, 9-11, they flew airplanes into buildings and killed people in the name of God because this is what God wants us to do. And what I want you to see in all of this is there is a great danger when we don't understand the person of God there's a great danger when we don't understand the person of God. You look at Jephthah, his entire life, he doesn't understand the person of God. And it culminates, it kind of comes to this end where he makes this vow to God that he would get victory. um, And he says, God, if you would give me victory, I'll sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. God doesn't wasn't pleased with that. God didn't ask for that. Didn't even line up with what God's heart is. He comes home, it's his only child, his daughter. And he's so ignorant to the person of God. He's so blinded by his own pride and need for acceptance, um, need for significance, selfish ambition, that he actually goes through with sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering. You know, I'll say this, there's great danger when we don't understand the person of God. Here's the thing, and this is where it brings all of us in this room together this morning. All of us, to some degree, misunderstand God's nature, His person, and His will. Every single one of us. And that misunderstanding has or is, at worst, leading us to death and destruction, and at a minimum, at best, is keeping us from fullness of life, and purpose. A healthy understanding of God leads us to wholeness. But an understanding of God with holes leads us to unhealthiness. And this in some way affects all of us. I want you to see this. There were two explosive elements that combined in Jephthah's life. The first one was rejection, the second was his misunderstanding of the person of God. I want you to see this, his rejection. He was born of a woman who was a prostitute. His brothers were born to another woman. They see him as from the early days. They're like, you don't belong with us. You'll never get the inheritance that it's ours. And they drive him away, rejection. And this rejection would begin to um, sort of define his entire existence. And we look at that combined with his misunderstanding of the person of God, and it becomes explosive in his life. And I want you to see that the two go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. When we face rejection, and we all have, and we experience rejection, our experience shakes our view of who God is. Here's some things I want you to know about rejection. One, it is common. It is a shared experience for all people. There's not one person in here who has not experienced rejection in some way, yet it makes us feel isolated. We've all experienced it. It is a common experience, but we feel isolated as if we're the only one who have ever experienced it. It manifests its fruit in various ways from within our heart. And listen, None of them are pretty. It's destructive in nature, and it does not discriminate against those it hurts. It is something that cannot be ignored, but we too often pretend it doesn't exist. Here's the thing, listen. Not only are we afraid of rejection, but we're even more afraid to admit how it has hurt us. There's some ways we experience we experience rejection. One, through relationships. Got a mentor of mine. Been meeting with him every week for about four years, I guess. Um, and every time he walks in, not every, but most times when he walks in, and I'll say, "Hey, how are you?" Um, he's got this really cool African accent, and, and when he walks in, and I'll say, "Hey, how are you?" He'll go, "I'm great." It's all these other people that are the problem. He's joking, but. I'm great. Saw these other people that are the problem. Anybody else ever feel like that? If everybody was just as good as I am. But relationships cause these deep hurts, right? People cause deep hurts. Unfortunately for many of you, some of those deepest hurts were caused by people in the church, relationships in the church. And it begins to change how we see God. Many of us have been betrayed by those you've trusted. You've been abused verbally or physically or both by those who should have protected you. You've been deserted by those who promised and even vowed to stay. And you've been humiliated by those that you finally found the courage to be vulnerable with. We've been lied to, stabbed in the back, abandoned, molested, cheated on, ignored, pressured, made fun of, slandered, gossiped about, and manipulated. And every relational experience we have shapes how we see our purpose, ourselves, others, and God. Relationally, we've been rejected. Circumstantially, we feel rejected. Some of us were born into horrible circumstances. Some were born into a household with abusive parents. Some of us were born into poverty. Some were born into homes that were ruled by fear. We begin to ask questions like, what did I do to experience this? Why was I rejected like this? What have I done? Others, you had experiences that have happened to you that left you just wondering why. Why did that have to happen? What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? How did I cause this rejection? For some of you, you just weren't fast enough, pretty enough, most athletic, smartest, funniest, etc. The list could go on and on, and because of that, you experience, you sense rejection. Some of us have experienced rejection because of our behavior, our behavior. Things that we've done that's caused us to be rejected, to be shunned. Some addiction brought destruction. Sexual promiscuity brought shame and scorn from others. You made mistakes in moments of lust and unbridled passion that cost you more than you could ever imagine. You lied to gain, and it caused great loss. You quit. You left. You gave in. You walked away. You spent too much, lied too much, drank too much, talked too much, told too much, ran too much in the wrong direction. And now you feel the weight of that. You feel the weight that rejection has caused, the shame, the guilt, the condemnation that rests upon you. And here's the thing. This sense that it gives us, this sense of inferiority that comes from it, it manifests in all sorts of dysfunctions. It manifests in a lack of intimacy with others and God. True intimacy. It diminishes my view of my own worth. It diminishes my view of the worth of others and therefore gives me permission to treat them poorly to gain what I want. It puts me on a lifelong journey, listen to this, to prove my worth that is, this journey is so often destructive to me and those around me. I've shared some of this story with you. I kind of want to put it all together today. When I moved here in 1985, I was 10 years old. You do the math, I'm old. Um, moved here in 85, had a hard time making friends. Just really, uh, as much as rejection, just not accepted, right? They kind of go hand in hand. I was rejected, I'm not accepted. Um, I experienced a lot of that. I experienced bullying. My mother um, was going to Georgia Southern, getting her degree while she was working, so she dropped me off really early at school. I remember walking down the fourth grade hallway at Julia P. Bryant, and I knew at the other end of the hallway, every single morning he got there right before me was someone waiting to bully me. And every single morning, I knew my stomach would hurt to the point of being upset where I just didn't even want to go. I never said anything. I didn't want my mom to be hurt by that. But I knew at the other end of the hall, I was about to get beat up. That saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, sticks and stones will break your bones, and Antonio that was waiting for me at the end of the hall will hurt you. (laughs) And he did every morning didn't fit in. I remember that same year, i was standing on the playground and I look up and there's this pretty little blonde haired girl going across the playground. And I remember just like it was yesterday, this thought popped into my head. I'd like to have one of those one day. (laughs) And from that moment, just seems like this little simple, innocent moment, right? Wow, she's pretty. I put my life on a course that I would make myself, whatever it took, to have someone like that i would do whatever it took to be in the popular crowd whatever it took i would build and shape my life to become that that spring i go out for baseball I was pretty good at baseball started trying out for the team and, and 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 they're picking teams and all the coaches coming up and saying hey i want you on my team i want you on my team Players starting to gather around me, starting to invite me. Hey, why don't you come over to my house and play? And guess what? All of a sudden, I found acceptance in the place of rejection. And it was all through baseball. So guess what I did? I poured my life into baseball. I played baseball from the time I was four years old to the time I was about 22 years old. And I can tell you this, and you could ask anybody. My coach comes here every Sunday morning. You can ask him. I've never been on a team, and I promise you this, I've never been on a team that There was any other player that cared more about that game than I did. That was grittier, that fought harder, that cared more about it than me. Because you know why? It wasn't just a win or a loss that was on the line. It was acceptance and rejection. It was value and worth. And I gave everything I had to this game. And I played as hard as I could so that eventually I signed a scholarship to play baseball at Georgia Southern University. And I was the least talented person on the team. But you know what I did? I kept giving in to my idol. I kept fighting for acceptance. And by the third year I was there, I'd gotten good enough that I played a pretty good bit. I even got two rings to show for it. They're in my office. I started to bring them. Didn't want to seem too boastful. So I worked my way into this. Now I feel like I'm more one of the guys. I don't feel like I'm down here and everybody else is here. So I worked real hard to get to that place, only for my baseball career to end with my coach telling me, you're overestimating your talent and ability. Now the one thing, the one place that I found acceptance had rejected me, and it just sent me again on a search for acceptance on a search to try to find some way that I had value and worth, not just to other people, but to myself. And what I want you to see in this is this, that we have a tendency as people to double down on our own ability when we experience rejection. When we experience rejection, our tendency is just to say, I'll show you. And we just double down on our own ability. We begin to search to find a place for acceptance, a place for belonging. And that's exactly what Jephthah did. They, they pushed him out, so he goes to Tob. And you know what he had? He could fight. He was a warrior. And some other guys saw him, and they were like, yeah, let's get around this guy. And he becomes some type of mob boss. And nobody, they may not have liked him, but nobody was going to mess with him. And then the Ammonites come and they begin to fight with Israel and the people of Gilead, the ones who had had, had rejected him. Go and they say, Come and lead us. He's like, Why would I lead you? They're like, Well, well come and you can be head over us. And he goes, Whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't want me. And now you want me to be head over you? The people who rejected me, I'm gonna rule over you. I'll do that. And it came full circle, and there had to be some sense of like like redemption for Jephthah, but because he was still running from this rejection, and because he's man, because he still doesn't understand the person of God, he makes this stupid vow that I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And lo and behold, the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter, his virgin daughter. And instead of realizing this isn't the heart of God. And go, no, his pride and his ignorance of the person of God allow him to carry through with this and offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to fulfill his own selfish ambition. See, his brokenness due to that rejection, followed him. Not knowing the person of God made him arrogant and made him make a vow that elevated himself, and it was completely unnecessary. And like Jephthah, we would just keep doubling down on our own ability to fix it, cover it, and overcome it. I was thinking about this this week, and I'm like, man, God, we all deal with this. And there's something in us that for some reason when we sense rejection, we run from God. It's almost like if they rejected me, he must reject me too. And we transpose this experience and maybe their feelings or their thoughts onto him. And I stopped for a moment and I just said, Jesus, what would you say to us? And I felt like this is what the Lord put in my heart. I felt like he said, the Father is not who you think he is. And because of that, you lack fullness of life. Because the Father is so much better than you think he is. The Bible tells us that and Jesus even said himself, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 3, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the express image of God. He's the fullness of the deity. In other words, when you see Jesus, you see the Father. And one night I'm laying in bed this week and I'm just pondering this. This is just all running through my head. And I started seeing all these contrasts of, of Jephthah and Jesus. Jephthah, this imperfect deliverer, savior. Jesus, this perfect deliverer, savior. And they started running through my head. I just started putting them in my phone as fast as my fat little thumbs could type. And I thought about this. I thought about how Jephthah used God's power to serve himself. Jesus used God's power to save others. I thought about how Jephthah fought for respect Jesus was willingly scorned. I thought about how the power of rejection destroyed Jephthah, but Jesus destroyed the power of rejection. I thought about how Jephthah sacrificed his only child to satisfy his own selfish ambition, and Jesus, God's only son, was sacrificed to save selfish sinners. I thought about how Jephthah was born to a prostitute and murdered his virgin daughter, but Jesus was born of a virgin and was murdered for every person who would ever do anything unclean. And as I lay there, I began to just be in awe of God. I began to think, God, how can you be so good? How can this be so true? How can this be so real? I've experienced rejection myself. I've got inaccurate thoughts about you, Father. And I felt like God again told me to look at the cross. And I want to invite you, if you can and if you will, you don't have to, obviously. But if you will, would you stand up? And I started thinking about this. And God took me to the cross again. And I want to ask you to close your eyes. Why I want to ask you to stand up. I don't want you to going to sleep. I want you to close your eyes and and just in your mind's eye, in your mind right now, I want you to throw out every thought about God that's, that's swirling around there. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to look at the cross where Jesus willingly died. I want you to see him on the cross because of our sin. Understand this, your sin did not put him there. Jesus put himself there. No one could take his life. He willingly laid down his life for us and took our sin. I want you to see him on the cross because of sin. But instead of feeling shame and rejection, I want you to see this as your pathway to acceptance. I want you to understand and see the love in his eyes for you. I want you right now, right now, right now, I want you to hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. In your mind and as you stare into his face and look into his eyes, I want you to understand the weight of what was on his shoulders. The sin of the world was upon him. My sin, your sin, all placed upon him. And I want you to see around him the clouds and the sky growing dark as the Bible says it did and the earth beginning to shake. I want you to sense and feel the earth shaking and see the darkness as the wrath of God falls upon him for the punishment of our sin. I want you to now look down, almost like you're looking down upon this scene, and I want you to see the hopelessness in the disciples' faces as he breathes his last breath. I want you to hear the silence now of the tomb that he lay in. I want you to hear the silence of the tomb that he lay in as he lay there lifeless and cold for three days. And I want you to see the light of that early dawn break forth in that tomb as the stone is rolled away and right now I want you to feel the rush of the Spirit of God and the breath of God that filled his lungs that morning The rush of the Spirit, the breath of God, you can breathe him in. If you are a believer, you are a temple of the Spirit, would you breathe him in this morning? Feel the rush of the Spirit bringing life. Thank you, Father, for life. Thank you, God, for the breath of the Spirit that gives life. And in that moment, I want you to hear the silence. Hear hear just the silence. Experience the silence of heaven as those angels are in awe of what just happened. And I want you to hear. And I want you to experience. That silence in heaven exploding into an eruption of praise as he steps out of the tomb. Overcoming death, hell, sin, and the grave forever. Showing us the heart of the Father. Showing us where we are to run when we face rejection. I want you to hear that silence, the angels in awe. I want you to hear that change into an eruption of praise for the Father who is so good. And I would encourage you in this. Why don't you do the same? Why don't you this morning realize it's not your rejection keeping you from him because Jesus has made a way. your misunderstanding of the Father. Instead of running from Him, why would you not run to Him? Why not bring your rejection to Him? Why don't you bring your broken heart to Him? Why don't you bring your hurts and your pain, your tears to Him today? And exchange a spirit of heaviness for garments of praise. I hear a lot of people, and you've probably heard about the Asbury revival. I hear a lot of people talking about that. But when I hear it talking about a lot, I hear people say, we want that to happen here. But I want you to understand this. Revival doesn't happen because we seek revival. Revival happens because our hearts are so hungry for Him. we don't want that we want you would you move in our hearts right now move God move be glorified in this place like the day of Pentecost Jesus would you blow your spirit through this place beyond our logic beyond our intellect beyond our understanding would you set us free today to worship you Jesus We praise you, God. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for healing, and thank you for deliverance. We worship you. Can you lift your heart? Can you lift your eyes? Can you lift your voices to the King of kings who's made a way? who took our rejection upon himself, and now he's got love in his eyes, and he calls us to come to him, and he's made this way, not not into some earthly tabernacle or temple, but into the very presence of God. God, it is your presence that we desire. This may seem so strange to you. But in my mind I saw Jesus on a cross, but it wasn't bloody. It was it was like gold. It was shining in all of his glory. Because he is overcome. God, we worship you today. Father, indwell this house, indwell this house, indwell these temples. Fill us, God, with the power.